Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. 1 Samuel 18 to 20, which is all about the relationship or the friendship between David and Jonathan and uh, King Saul as well. So there's going to be different parts and we won't read the whole story, but you should be able to pick up the most of it. 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in, in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword his bow, and his belt. 1 Samuel 19, 1-5. Saul told his son Jonathan and all of the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding, and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the fields where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? 1 Samuel 20. 13 to 17. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he has loved him as he loved himself. 1 Samuel 20, 41-42. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Thanks, Kelsey. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this great story. Uh, Thank you that, as Andrew has already said, and Tim, that uh, you are our great friend. And as we know your friendship with us, we can befriend one another and befriend the stranger and form deep friends and be a a church that is both very welcoming but also very deep in our own friendships. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is week two in a series on sex and relationships. We want to talk honestly from the Bible about some of the big pressing issues in our culture today. Last week was how do we find satisfaction in a sex-crazed culture. 
Today, it's how we form deep, meaningful friendships in a culture that is increasingly fragmented, transient, and often superficial. And we're going to use the story of Jonathan and David from 1 Samuel to help us. The story is about how King Saul is losing his power in Israel, and David is rising to power as prophesied by Samuel the the prophet. And Saul starts to go raging mad with jealousy and often psychotic to the point of throwing spears at uh, David. And, uh, but he does have other moments when he realizes David's done nothing wrong. But he's still sort of so mad that David's going to come and get him, in a sense, and become king. So 1 Samuel 18 to 20 is all about the evil within Saul's heart and the evil intentions towards David. Uh, and what, at the, what, what happens at the start of 1 Samuel 18 and right at the end of 1 Samuel 20 is we learn about the, the friendship through a covenant they made between David and Jonathan. As one commentator puts it, the friendship of David and Jonathan brackets the evil that is contained within chapters 18 to 20. In other words, Jonathan showed David friendship at a vital time so David could survive. Without the friendship of Jonathan, David would not have become all who he was supposed to be under God. David's life is under threat. He's being hunted by Saul. What does he need to to survive? He needs a spiritual friend. And God provides that through Jonathan. And so we too need friends and need to be the friends to one another so we can become the people God wants us to be. So we're going to think about three things in terms of spiritual friendship or these deep, meaningful friendship. We're going to think about the need for friendship. We're going to think about the pathways to friendship. And we're going to think about the power for friendship. So let's start by talking about the need for friendship. When you uh, go back to the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, if you know the story, the writer depicts the creation of the earth happening over six days. And each day has something different. Day one is light and darkness, and we learn that it was good. Day two is about the sky, waters above from waters below, and we learn that it's good. Day three is about the dry ground and the vegetation and the plants, and we learn that it's good. Day four is about the lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, and it was good. Day five is about the creatures, uh, the sea creatures and the birds, and it was good. Day six is about the land and that he creates uh, things on the land, and it was good. And then day six has another moment after God has pronounced everything is good. He then goes on and makes mankind in his image, and this is what we read. Then the Lord God said, let, make, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God calls mankind to be fruitful on the earth and to fill the earth. And then it says this, right at the end of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was not just good, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So if you've read Genesis 1, you know there's this repeated frame, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. God looks at the land, the sea, the plants, the trees, the birds, the animals, and it was good, and mankind was very good. And then all that goodness is interrupted in shocking fashion in the next chapter when it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And we're supposed to feel the shock because everything so far is good. And we get the first tension in the Bible. How can a perfect paradise, sin hasn't entered, be not good? How can this perfect world where the serpent hasn't entered not be good? It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good, it is not good. Answer, Adam was lonely. Remember how God said, let us 
make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Who's God speaking to? He's speaking to himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are having a discussion about how to make this amazing world and how to make mankind. Let us make mankind in our image. So we are made in the image of a divine friendship who forever the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been enjoying and serving and blessing and sharing in this divine friendship of love. And therefore, we as humans cannot fully reflect God truly on our own. We reflect Him truly, most fully in community because God is a triune God. It is not good for man to be alone. He needs a friend. What does this mean? Listen very carefully. It means Adam was lonely not because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not a result of sin. Every other ache, every other longing that Adam had, the hunger ache, the sickness ache, the guilt ache, the lack of meaning in life ache came from sin. This is the one ache that came from his perfection. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. We cannot enjoy our joy without friends. Adam had a perfect relationship with God, and it wasn't enough. Because God made him to reflect him, and he is a trinity, and therefore he made him to have friends. And the the chapter ends, chapter 2, with this amazing statement. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In other words, Adam and Eve were fully known and fully loved. And deep down, I think that's what we all want. We want someone to know us fully and love us fully. For me to feel like I don't have to hide, I don't have to put on a mask, I don't have to pretend, I don't have to do that exhausting business of controlling what information you do and don't know about me. Just fully know me. No masks. I just want to be known. But I'll only want to be known if I know I'm fully loved, fully accepted, fully embraced, complete security. That's the rest every one of us was built to know. I'm fully known. I'm fully loved. In other words, at the heart of spiritual friendship is complete emotional disclosure and complete emotional security. Naked and unashamed. Vulnerability and trustworthiness. Tim Keller puts it like this. Friends always let you in. They never let you down. Friends always let you in, emotional nakedness, disclosure, vulnerability. They never let you down, no shame, emotional security, trustworthiness. Application number one, if you feel lonely, if you want friends, if you have this ache for emotional disclosure and emotional security, you're not weird, you're not dysfunctional, you're fine. You're made in the image of God. In fact, you're demonstrating that with that ache. It's part of what, who we are. We're not a tree. We're not machines. They don't get lonely. They're not made in the image of God. Now, one of the reasons we may not have friends is because of our sin, our flaws, our insecurities. We'll come to that. But the passion, the ache, the longing is not because of sin. It's because of being made in God's image. Application two. Semi-consciously, we often say as a self-defense mechanism, I don't need friends. I'll do it on my own. People have let you down. People left town and it was exhausting and so hard for you to break that friendship when they left. Or you feel like you're always putting more into the friendship than you're getting back. I often hear people say that to me. I'm putting more in than I get back. Or because as you're getting older, it's harder to make friends. Or, or you've tried and you've failed and you don't want to try again. And we say to ourselves, self-protection, I can do it without friends. And your heart hardens towards the idea of friendship. You're wrong. You can't. 
Adam needed Eve, Jonathan needed David, Paul needed Timothy and Silas, the Son of Man needed 12 friends. God made us for friendship. We cannot survive without friendship. We cannot be happy without friendship. We cannot survive evil without friendship. So whatever you do, don't give up on friendship. We need them. We're made for them. Fight for them. We're not complete without them. These deep, vulnerable, but secure friendships. That's the need. That's the vision. That's the ideal. So how do we form them? The pathways to friendship. There's four paths that lead to friendship. Discovery, risk, constancy, and candor. Let's talk about the first one, discovery. This is huge. Friendship cannot be manufactured. It has to be discovered. So C.S. Lewis, who wrote a famous book called The Four Loves, about the four different types of love that there are in this world from the Greeks, uh, looked at friendship, filio love, and he looked at the difference between lovers, eros, and filio friends. And he says this, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends are side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. And he goes on to say this very famous quote, Friendship arises out of mere companionship where two or more of their companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. This week I spoke at the Irish Bible Institute's retreat in Athlone, Castle Daly, the beautiful place we're going for our weekend away. And I said to them on the first night, they were doing the normal Q&A with the speaker, tell us something interesting about yourself. I said, I have Addison's disease. It's this very rare disease, one in 100,000, and I nearly died, and I'm okay, and I'm on the medication. Next day, a lady sits down next to me and says, I have Addison's disease. I went, I thought I was the only one. You too. I had a selfie. I was sending it to Leanne. Look, I found that Addison's friends. We bonded. We talked about Addison's and our crisis. I haven't done that with anyone. It was a you too moment. Sinead was her name. If I see her again, we're going to kick it straight off about our Addison's, aren't we? So Lewis goes on to say, friends do not say, do you love me, to each other. They rather say, do you see the same truth? Or do you care about the same truth? And this is an insight which helps us realize where many of us don't have the friends we want. And his, Lewis's language is sharp here. Listen, he says, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that you want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question is, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend, no friendship can arise. Their affection, of course, may. There will be nothing for the friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something, even if it only a mere enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice or Addison's. (laughs) Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So if you have a desire to make friends then know that desire is a good desire. You're made in the image of God. But if you just go, I just need friends and I'm desperate, I'm just going to look for friends and I'm going to ask everyone to be my friend, you'll be too needy, you'll be too desperate. Instead, Genesis 1 and 2, love God, enjoy all of his creation and discover people alongside you who are doing that too. Don't go looking for friendship, go looking for God and go looking to serve him and his purposes in Dublin, and get involved in this world, find hobbies. You'll just suddenly find lots of friends when you take your eyes off finding friends, and just serving God, and getting involved in things in the city. And church can be a great place for this. We just advertise that we're going to have our Sunday serving teams, and some of you are on those. Please come. Some of you are thinking, oh, I should get involved. 
Like, it can be hard to form friends, but if you're stacking chairs, you've got something in common, and you talk about it, and you form a friendship, and it's natural, and it's easier. We're serving together. Serve God, serve his purposes, enjoy his creation, discover friends alongside it. Discovery. The second thing is risk. What do I mean risk? For a true and deep friendship to form at some point, someone in that friendship has to take a risk and let the other person in. There has to be disclosure. You have to stop controlling the bits of information you want people to know and and, and hiding the bits you don't want them to know. You just have to let them in. But here's the challenge. To let someone in is to open yourself up to serious hurt or potential. So C.S. Lewis, again, in his book, The Four Loves, puts it like this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And that is what many in our culture do. They protect themselves from this idea that if I open myself up, I could be hurt. And their hearts become hard. For, for example, one classic example. I will share my body with you, our culture says, and have sex with you, but I'm not going to let you into my deep secrets and pains. I'll share my body physically, but I won't share my emotions. And what happens? It causes devastation in lives. You can't share one part of you without sharing the other part. And so we're in this catch-22. I want deep emotional vulnerability and security, but I don't want the risk that it takes. At some point, you have to take the risk. Aren't some of the expressions about Jonathan and David just beautiful? 18.3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account, which is his dad. And Jonathan uh, Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. There's deep emotional sharing, vulnerability, disclosure, physical affection. If you want deep friendship, you're going to have to share emotionally and there's going to be physical affection and it will involve a risk, the risk of rejection, the risk of opening up, the risk of receiving back less than you're giving. So you first discover friendships, but to form fully and go deep, there's got to be a moment of disclosure and moving from the common interest to now let's talk about what's going on in my heart, which brings me to the third pathway of friendship, Discovery, risk, constancy. Did you hear how many times the word covenant was used with David and Jonathan? If you read the whole narrative, Jonathan is there every single time David needs anything, either arguing his case before his father Saul, strengthening him in his isolation, or actually protecting him from his father Saul. Jonathan is constant. You see, I will not open up to you emotionally if I cannot trust you that you're going to, be, you're going to honor what I, trust, what I share with you. I need to know you're constant. I need to know you're trustworthy. That you're going to honor and protect what I share with you. But here's why constancy is a challenge. To be constant for someone requires a huge amount of personal sacrifice. When you become a parent, uh, it requires you to be constantly there for your children. And your children, therefore, curtail personal freedom. Hugely. And if you as a parent don't adjust to the curtailing of your personal freedom your children will suffer and be lonely. So either you make the sacrifices for your kids so they are emotionally healthy, or you keep hold of your freedoms and they'll be emotionally needy. 
Parenting involves sacrifices. Why? Because it requires you to be constantly there. Your kids need to know that you're there. And so it is with friendships. There needs to be a constancy. And for that constancy to happen, there's got to be sacrifices. If you can't make the sacrifices, yes, you'll remain free, but you'll also remain emotionally needy. You won't form these friends. So in another Catch-22, I want deep emotional vulnerability and emotional security and, the, and what's promised in friendship, but I don't want the sacrifice and the constancy that's required of me being there the whole time. But without the constancy, without the trustworthiness, no one is going to entrust their heart to you, and they'd be foolish to. I don't know if this person's here today or tomorrow, what they're going to do with this. I need to know they are here, and I can trust them. Look at the sacrifices Jonathan had to make to be constant for David. They're enormous, bigger than you realize. Who's heir to the throne? Saul, his father. Who's heir? Jonathan. Huh. You see, he takes off his tunic. He takes off his sword. Jonathan says to David, I will give up my right to the throne because you're the promised king. He steps out the way. He sacrifices status and right to the throne. It wasn't just his status he sacrificed. Jonathan put in jeopardy his family ties. He jeopardizes with a relationship with his father, who's power hungry, and he knows he's wrong. And at one point in the narrative, Saul gets jealous and, 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 and insecure about the friendship that's so deep with David and Jonathan that he throws a spear at Jonathan, his own son. So Jonathan lost the relationship with his father to fight for David. He sacrifices status. He sacrifices right to the throne. He sacrifices right to the relationship with his father. He was willing to endanger his own life for Jonathan. That's the kind of sacrifices that you need to make to be constant. He needed to make to be constant for David. If you want to form deep friendships, you have to think about what it means to sacrifice some of your freedoms. Sacrifices around what job to take, which part of the city to live in, how much to be away from Dublin at the weekends. Financial sacrifices, career sacrifices. I want the deep friends. Well, I don't want to have to say I have to be in Dublin to make. Oh, well, you can't have both. But it's not just the practical things. You need to be willing to take on the emotional burdens that your friends will bring. Think of the weight Jonathan must have carried around with him, the tension that he felt with his father, the responsibility he felt because he'd made this covenant with David. Jonathan put great limits on his freedom to be constant for David. Question, are you willing to put these limits on your freedom, to make these types of friends. Our culture says, follow your desires, become who you're truly meant to be. Don't let anyone inhibit you. The problem is we cannot become truly who we're meant to be without friends. And to form those deep friendships, we do need to inhibit ourselves from time to time. Again, I made this application in other contexts. If you're new to Dublin, if you're settling into the church, into the church, into the city groups. Think carefully about just throwing away all the investment you've made to move for a career opportunity, just to move on. The friendships matter. They take time. They take constancy. They take sacrifice. So the pathways to forming these deep friendships, discovery, you cannot manufacture them. Risk, at some point, you've got to let someone in. And constancy, you've got to be willing to inhibit your personal freedoms so someone knows they can trust you. Fourthly, candor. Candor is an old-fashioned word. It means the quality of being open and honest, or frankness. The book of Proverbs, which speaks a lot about friendships, puts it like this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If you were here last week, we had three baptisms, and one of them was Kelsey. She read the passage, and I asked her permission to share again her story. 
If you remember Kelsey's story, she found a lot of her identity in men. And uh, she said this, and I, I asked her if I could share. Kelsey said, in my 20s, I fell in with the wrong crowds. I wanted to fit in. Finally, had guys pursuing me, low self-esteem. I fell away from God, started drinking and blacking out, partying, and slept with men as a result of the drinking. Would always cry the next day in shame. I still believed in God and knew he wanted better for me, but I didn't understand the concept of grace. I was too guilty to turn from God, which led me to repeat the same patterns of sin and shame. One of my Christian friends, or no, my one Christian friend, Cassie, wrote me an intervention letter. She reminded me that God has so much more in store for me. The creator of the universe wants to know me, and that should make me want to stand in awe and amazement rather than searching for that amazement in places it will never fulfill. Kelsey said, at first I was shocked and taken aback that she'd invaded my private life, and I felt embarrassed and annoyed. But I respected her opinion, trusted her wisdom, and over time she led me back to God and the church, an intervention letter. Do you have a friend in your life that can write you an intervention letter? That kind of candor can speak to you and just say, I need to talk about some of this stuff. It's not good. You see, Kelsey's like, I wanted to block it. I wanted to cut it out. How dare she? I was embarrassed. I was annoyed. But no, I needed that friend to bring me back to God. We need those friends. They're constant. They make sacrifices for us, and they speak the truth in love. They write intervention letters. Do you have anyone in your life like that? Or are you increasingly giving permission to some people in this church who know you well to speak like that into your life? Are you telling them, I want you to do that if I'm wandering from God? If not, why not? What do you fear? Or maybe better, what steps do you need to take so you can start to open up with people bit by bit so they can speak honestly to you? The pathways to friendship, discovery, risk, constancy and candor. Before I move on to my final point, two applications. Firstly, can you see why you can't? The proverb says this, 1824, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a friend. In other words, you can't have many of these friends. We live in a time when people have lots of companions. Through social media, we feel connected to hundreds of people. And we are connected to hundreds of people, but that's it, we're connected. Proverbs would say, a man of many connections comes to ruin, but a friend loves at all times. You cannot have hundreds of deep, these deep friends. It's, it takes too much time. It takes too many sacrifices. You couldn't. And so you need to resist the urge to have hundreds of connections at the expense of making five or ten really, really great friends. Invest in a few. Don't be foolish and have tons of connections, but no one who knows you. Second application as you discover those you have friendships with that you'd start discovering around you because you can't have many of these friends, choose ones wisely that have the same values as you and Christian values particularly. So if you're a Christian, that is why your best friends will most likely be, and I would say should be, Christians because you share with them the deepest thing in your life. A Christian is someone who says, Jesus, you're my identity. I build my life on your word, the Bible. Every decision I make, I make in line with what your word says. At the heart of who I am is Jesus. Well, if I'm going to share the heart of who I am, how can I share the heart of who I am with someone that can't understand it? That's why the Bible in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 6, counsels us to marry only Christians. Because you'd be a fool to share your heart with someone that can't understand your heart. Your spouse is to be your closest friend, and the very essence of who you are as a Christian is Jesus. 
And if you can't look at your spouse and say, can I share the very essence of who I am? The Bible says you're a fool. Choose wisely. It's clear. You haven't wasted your life. It's not over if you don't. But listen to the warning and heed the advice. So we've looked at the need for friendship. We're built for deep emotional vulnerability and security. We've looked at the pathways to forming these friends, discovery, risk, constancy, and candor. Finally, the power for friendship. As with every part of Scripture, when the ideal is held up, we realize how far we fall short of God's glory. You look at this thing of friendship and you go, oh my word, that level of openness, sacrifice, candor, risk, constancy. It's too much. It's too risky. I'm too fearful to let people in. I'm too proud to admit that I need this. I'm too selfish to impinge my personal freedoms. And yet if I don't, I'm going to have this ache of emotional vulnerability and security that God's made me for. I was this catch-22 again. How will I ever be able to make this kind of friend and be this kind of friend for other people? Here's how. We said it through the whole service. By looking at the one who befriended you perfectly. Think about the cross. God is trying to make you a friend because you're an enemy. You've sinned and you deserve judgment. What does he have to do to bring you back into friendship? Hit me in the middle. I couldn't be more vulnerable. I can't protect myself. And they spat at him and they mocked him and they smashed him with spears. And in our hearts, so did every one of us. His arms are wide open saying, I'm open to you. And we abuse it. We deny him like Peter. We betray him like Judas. He's he's opened up his heart to us. He's washed our feet. Jesus knows the agony of being rejected by those he wants to save. Of giving and not receiving the same back. Keeping initiating in the friendship and finding the friend doesn't give as much back. Jesus is the true Jonathan. He gave up his right to the throne so we could become kings and queens. He jeopardized his relationship with his father. His father poured out all his wrath on him so we could be accepted. And he endangered his own life to give us life. Jesus is our Jonathan, and his friendship can bracket any evil in your life, sustain you, and make you who you're supposed to be. He doesn't give up on you. He's constantly coming for you. He's constantly initiating. He's opening up himself. He's taking the risk. It's beyond anything you deserve. As Tim Keller says, he'll always let you in. He's never going to let you down. He's going to be constant. He's going to be intimate if you want him to be. He's going to protect you if you share your heart with him. Jesus, I'm going to tell you everything. He'll protect you. He'll cover the shame when you mess up. Where do you get the power to be this kind of friend for other people? Where do you get the power to be the kind of friend that lets people in like this? When you know how much you've been befriended by Jesus and the sacrifice it cost him. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after he'd washed their feet? My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no, call, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Don't give up on friendship. You can't do without it. You're not meant to live alone. We need friends. Don't stop initiating. Keep reaching out. Don't become full of self-pity. I'm always the one putting the effort in. If that's the case, speak with candor to the friend and say, look, I'm finding this tough. Or just keep going like Jesus did. Don't stop sharing. Don't stop letting others in. Don't stop taking the risk. 
make the sacrifices on your personal freedom to form these friends. And as you discover the deeper friendship, that God, the deeper friends that God wants to bring, invest, 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 invest. And you see, as we form these friends at Christ City Church, this becomes the, this becomes the basis of which we have the stability to keep reaching out to the city. It can be exhausting doing mission. It can be exhausting continue to bring new people in, but we must. How do you have the stability? You've got great friends around you. We have 12 disciples. Well, Jesus had 12 disciples. I just, as I was praying over this this morning, as I finished my prep, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 came to my mind. Uh, the the, the uh, apostles are being persecuted for preaching in Jerusalem. And they have this amazing courage. And they say, you know, salvation is found in no other name. There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved except Jesus. 4.12. says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. You become a friend of Jesus. You form these friends, Peter and John. You can change the world. You really can. It can give you a stability that is so marvelous and empowering for you to cope with the evil and the challenges in your life and then keep reaching out to others. If you want to stand, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Andrew back. And uh, we're going to take a moment to consider what this means for ourselves. And I want to just put before you those four pathways again and ask you to consider what it is for you to make these kind of friends. Discovery, risk, constancy, and candor. And I want us to open ourselves up again to the friendship God offers us and to soften our hearts to him. So take a moment. If you're comfortable, you can close your eyes and uh, just reflect. Let's be silent for a moment. Father, we thank you that it says we love because you first loved us. We thank you that you're the great initiator, the great befriender. We thank you that you keep opening yourselves up to us and you opened yourself up to us fully by becoming so humble and so vulnerable in Jesus and dying in our place. Thank you, dear Lord, that you would endanger yourself to protect us. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you because you are our friend. If we share our hearts with you, you'll protect them. And I pray, Lord, as we know the friendship you've offered us and continue to offer us, it would give us power to be these friends to others. Friends that are constant for one another and make the sacrifices to build the friendships. Friends, friends that speak truthfully to one another in love, but truthfully. And sometimes the wounds from a friend, they're wounds, they're tough, but it's, they can be trusted. I pray for people here who want these kind of friends. Lord, over the next six, 12 months, would you grant them the desire of their heart? That, would, you, would you fill the longing, that ache that Adam had? Help them not to become desperate and needy, but to trust you, to look to your friendship and to find people alongside them. Pray, Lord, as a church, we'd never become cliquey, but that we would form deep friendships. We'd keep reaching out to others. So, Lord, we thank you for this chance again to reflect on your friendship for us and what it is to befriend others. And I pray like Peter and John, because we spend time with you, 
the world around would go, these are unschooled people, but they have a courage and a fearlessness, they have a stability that friendship with you and friendship with one another gives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.